the Cannabis Business Coach. Hi, Mike Z here, author of the Cannabis Business Book, and you're listening to the Cannabis Business Coach Podcast, where I chat with and coach the highest performing entrepreneurs in the cannabis industry. Hi, Mike Z is, hi, Mike Z is, hi, Mike Z is, the Cannabis Business Coach. Hi, Mike Z here, and on today's episode of the Cannabis Business Coach Podcast, I'm joined by Ross O'Brien, the founder and CEO of Bonaventure Equity. And Ross, thank you so much for, for being here. You're also the author of the book, Cannabis Capital, which we'll dive into, I'm sure. Um, but before we get into the interview, I, I would love for you to just introduce yourself and give a little more background about yourself. Sure. Thanks, Mike. It's a real pleasure to be here. Appreciate you uh, putting this together. And uh, as always, given the timing of when we're talking, I hope every, yourself and all your listeners are healthy and everyone's doing well and in good spirits. Um, so yeah, I guess the place to start is a little bit about Bonaventure Equity. We are a committed cannabis venture capital investment fund. Um, we sort of migrated out of the family office space where I've been doing a lot of private transactions for the most of my career. And the last couple of years really saw just some developments and advancements in the space after tracking it for some time that got very interesting. So we've put together our, our first of what will be several investment funds. We have uh, six investments, soon to be seven now. Uh, and we took, a, I think, a go slow to go fast approach where we have not only capital that we deploy, but we also... Uh, have an operational platform where all of our companies get access to a uh, back office finance and operations team to help them scale effectively, quickly, faster, stronger. Uh, and as you mentioned, I also uh, took the time last year to write the first book on venture capital for cannabis called Cannabis Capital, uh, which was really targeted to entrepreneurs to help them uh, raise capital for their businesses because there's a lot of them out there now. Awesome. And I'm wondering if there was a moment when it all clicked for you and you decided, all right, I'm going all in on cannabis. So uh, I think Mike, it, it really stems back to just exposure to cannabis uh, as a lot of people talk about in their younger years and for me, certainly in college. And um, it just always struck me as something that was seemed so benign compared to, you know, so many other things that were, that were legal. And, and it just, I was always sort of scratching my head. How is, how are, you know, how is there people going to jail for this? How is it not, you know, it, it was people that were very healthy in their lifestyle that were using cannabis recreationally that otherwise wouldn't dabble in things that were more, you know, vice driven. And certainly saw a trend of people in my, you know, social circles and not everyone, but certainly people who would be willing to break the law to get access to cannabis, and they were otherwise entirely law-abiding, you know, people. So it was always something that I had on my radar. A few years ago, we started looking at some cannabis investments with uh, the family office that I was involved with for many years and doing their investing, and we just didn't see the maturation or the the you know sophistication in the entrepreneurs. Not to be pejorative, but we just didn't see the the same types of entrepreneurs that we would have seen with the experience sets in other industries. Like I've done a lot of investing, you know, personally and operationally, et cetera, in, in healthcare. And so when we were looking at the opportunity set, it was always, you know, at, at what point does it, you know, does it or doesn't match up? So for us, the shift was really in, at the end of 2017, uh, the capital markets were exploding. We had never had any in interest in uh, the public markets for, you know, obvious reasons, I think, and that's proven out in October of last year. Um, but we were really looking at, you know, high growth, early stage companies, great entrepreneurs, and starting to see that, you know, coming to light now a little bit more. So we reoriented our entire focus at that point to uh, cannabis investing and, and building out our platform. Cool. Very cool. And so I'm wondering, what's the day in the life of a cannabis investor? And what's it like to be you? <laughs> well, for anybody who's watching this, they can see we have our uh, office here, people coming and going. And my best friend and chairman of our board, uh, my dog Gibson, is, uh, uh, loves any moment he can get on camera. Um, so it's certainly not without uh, excitement, I guess, would be the, <laughs> you know, a lot of, a lot of action. Uh, you know, it's like a nonstop action flight. <laughs> Given that 2020 has been a pretty unique year how has that impacted 
business for you or for your portfolio companies? So that's a, a great question and something I think that would be front and center with everybody right now. Um, you know, at, at, as things started to, to take shape, uh, one thing we had an invest, or rather an events business called the Cannabis Dealmakers Summits. Uh, and we obviously had to put that all on pause. That was something a, 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 that we had as part of our platform for a lot of engagement. Uh, and we used to hold them in uh, San Diego, Miami, and New York uh, quite successfully. Uh, but obviously had to put that on pause, and, and I'm sure we'll come back to it at some point. Uh, the symptom of that was a re renewed focus on our investment activities uh, and really you know, hunkering down with our management teams, the portfolio companies. So the first thing we did was kind of just pens down, stop everything, and just work with the management teams. Uh, a couple of teams in particular, we were very much you know, every other day on you know, long Zoom calls and just making sure that you know, we all understood that this is a unprecedented change in the approach and and the, and the business and that we were taking decisive action and and right or wrong needed to take action in a lot of situations and it turned out to a lot be right um, and help you know shepherd those investments that's our job as investors we're not passive investors and we're not interested in just showing up to you know board meetings every quarter uh, so we got very very focused and just put the blinders on and just ignored a lot of the noise and I'm pleased to say that our portfolio is doing extremely well, and and it was one of those times where, um, you know, you really have to have that rapport, build that rapport with the management team, so that, that you can be helpful at times like this. And there were a lot of tough conversations, so we really, you know, hunkered down. Um, ironically, we've you know raised a lot of money uh, in this time, uh, but I think that's also because the strategy's sound. It's long term. It's a you know marathon, not a sprint. And we had the opportunity to, to, to really sharpen our pencils and make sure that we had you know, all the pieces in place. And, and so we took it as an opportunity to do that and really double down on our strategy. Fantastic. So tell me a little bit about your book and what inspired you to write it. And I'm curious as I've written two books and I'm curious what the process was like for you. <laughs> And, you know, it's, I, it's a labor of love and it's, it's certainly not an easy task. So I'm curious to hear about your experience and just the, the motivation behind the book. Well, I, I, and I'd be interested in your reaction if this is typical, atypical is my first book. So uh, unfortunately, it turns out that my dog isn't that good at transcribing or working a keyboard. So as much as I was trying to dictate to him, it, it didn't turn out to fall on my shoulders. Um, but it was an incredible process. So it's published by Entrepreneur Media. Uh, we have a great relationship with them, and they have uh, Green Entrepreneur, which is also their cannabis-focused publication. And uh, just think they're just right in the forefront of all the, you know, germane business conversations, et cetera. So they've been just an amazing partner. Uh, and it started really because I wanted to put something out there that was a resource for entrepreneurs. And we had so many companies coming to us and, and looking to raise capital. I mean, we looked at, you know, 350, maybe even 400 companies before we wrote our first check. And so just seeing a lot of deal flow and comparatively, again, there just seemed to be a lack of fidelity in the conversation around financing with, between the entrepreneurs and the investors. So I felt like I had a moment in time where I had access to a lot of the other investors. I interviewed 20 or 25 other you know, investment funds and family offices that are investing in the space where I could hear anecdotally what the investors were looking for and put it in something in a resource that the entrepreneurs could, could benefit from. And so it became you know, fairly technical in the sense of like how to you know, value private companies and how to put together your financing plan and how to you know, present to investors and negotiate term sheets and you know, just sort of the blocking and tackling of transactional work that really isn't the, the you know, the, the mysterious dark arts of Wall Street anymore. It's, you know, it's, it's accessible. So I wanted to put it out there. Um, as I launched into the project, though, one of the things that really occurred to me was there's a lot of, still a lot of disconnect between the entrepreneurs and investors in the space. And primarily, when you look at people that are, you know, legacy cannabis entrepreneurs, uh, just saying, hey, you don't get cannabis, this, you know, you don't get it. And a lot of, you know, people from other sectors coming in and saying, well, you know, these cannabis people just don't get business. And, and what occurred to me was that I felt like the blockage in that conversation was everybody was referring to this as the cannabis industry, yet having different perspectives on what is the cannabis industry. So I stepped back and actually wasn't initially scoped in the book, but 
have defined for the fir- in the first place now uh, the cannabis economy. So, and this uh, informed our investment thesis. I don't believe that cannabis is an industry. And as you look at the definition of economy, we view cannabis as a global economy. It is a trend. It is not a cycle. And there will be cannabis and cannabis-derived products in every home period. And so when we look at that macro scale, as with any economy, there's subsectors and then sub-industries within those sectors. So we wanted to inoculate that you know, blockage in the conversation, say, no, we're all part of the cannabis economy. Now you can have the conversation between the investor and the entrepreneur that you really should be having, which is around the merits of the business and the fit from both parties, right? So as that developed, we've you know, really, really taken on the mantle of, of now defining the role of venture for cannabis. So what also occurred uh, during this, this process, and so I'll answer your question directly, but some of the learnings from it was that has largely informed our investment thesis as well, which I didn't anticipate writing the book, is that you know, we believe that, that cannabis venture capital is an emerging investment strategy in its own right, and that it's not, uh, it's not reasonable to just try to adopt and drop you know, Silicon Valley venture capital into cannabis. Because incumbent venture capital is designed to invest in innovation and disruption in mature markets. This is not a mature market. You know, the, the, you know, this is disruption by nature just through the regulatory arbitrage of things changing, right? So, so when we looked at that, we said, look, we need to change our aperture for what we define as early stage investing. And so the companies that we've ended up really focusing on and getting excited about are more foundational in their concepts as opposed to innovation. Um, you know, are, are less on disruption, but more on operation and good sound operations and putting good infrastructure around the businesses. And obviously a lot then maps to, you know, uh, technology and, and a lot of science and healthcare. Um, but after I signed the publishing agreement, they said, look, do you think uh, you can get this thing out in, uh, you know, by January this year, which was the deadline. I'm pleased to say I'm at the deadlines, but uh, basically I had to sit down and write this thing 75,000 words in three months. So it was an absolute fire drill, and and I'd love to hear you know your opinion, Mike. I'd see you reacting to that. That's most people's reactions. Yeah, um, it was a passion project and something we just had to go do. Um, you know, but I I had a very unique and special experience. I, I you know showed it to one publisher. It was the right fit. We iterated the project and then just dug in and 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 turned it around. Wow. Yeah. That is that is a tight, tight deadline and kudos to you for getting that done. That's like a fire drill to put it lightly. Um, and I love, I love your distinction about the cannabis economy. It's not an industry. It's, it's a whole series of different industries. And, right. you know, I, I talk about this in my book actually, where it's like, if you look at medical cannabis versus industrial hemp versus adult and social use, it's three completely different universes. You know, the plant is at the center of it, of course, but you know, it really isn't one industry at all. So I, I, I really enjoy that. And I think that's spot on. And it's, it's interesting, the distinction you also make about how traditional venture capital doesn't work in cannabis. I think that that's something that I've seen lots of investors who come into the space or who are, looking to get into the space they like i've found it very difficult to get that point across to them and i'm wondering if you could speak to that a little more and and i think i think it hurt a lot of the progress um with this sort of klondike mentality of just rushing in and these premature ipos i mean i have the benefit of working with public and private companies throughout my entire career i've been an entrepreneur since i'm 19 right so you know I, i sort of step back and was saying, wait a minute, you know, a company is doing five or $10 million in revenue wants to go public in Canada. Like, you know, just because it's cannabis doesn't mean the rules of business don't apply. Right. So, you know, we were, we were kind of scratching our heads around a lot of that. There just seemed to be so much rush and so much, you know, uh, enthusiasm, right. That uh, it was a little bit scary. And so we wanted to make sure we at least stuck to our knitting. Right. And that's not to say this is the investment approach for everyone, but for us, uh, and my partners, a lot of my partners from other investments that I've done in other sectors are, are partners with me now again, you know, we, 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 you know, know our strike zone and that's finding a company that's, you know, series A, that's just about on a, you know, trajectory of needs some really, you know, a lot of growth capital, maybe the first institutional series A, series B, 
And then these companies, we stick with the stories for a long time and, and watch them grow and help them grow and, you know, provide resources to do that. You know, so I think the conversation was most defined when I was talking with one of the founders of one of our investments. And we were at the MJ BizCon in, in Vegas in December. And we were kind of talking about these sort of rigid perspectives, right? I'll use my hands as an example of, you know, the, the entrepreneurs are very rigid, like this is cannabis, I know cannabis, and the investors are very rigid, this is venture, and I know venture. And the way we found was we both had to kind of bend our perspectives to, to find some common ground in the middle. And so when those, you know, when those became more in alignment, we were able to put together a really fantastic transaction that was a win-win for everybody and company we really believe in very, very strongly and think it'll be exceptional. And, you know, and so what I would say for investors, which was your question, um, you know, this is not, I don't see this as about, you know, going and looking for a, you know, quote unquote unicorn or having some, you know, quick IPO with, which by the way, when you're, you know, getting liquidity up in Canada, you know, try getting that into your brokerage account in the US. They're really not as liquid as, you know, they're, 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 you know, presenting to be and everybody wants to make money, right? But, you know, at some point, if it's too good to be true, it's too good to be true. I think the foundation of, you know, our culture telling us that, you know, cannabis is here to stay. I mean, I think that's the silver lining in the public markets, right? It, it, there wouldn't have been this this irrational exuberance or enthusiasm for cannabis investments if the retail investor didn't fundamentally believe that cannabis is here to stay in our in our communities, and, and I think that's the the you know the real underlying silver you know lining to this. But then I think it comes down to blocking and tackling. Like building businesses is really hard, <laughs> and if it was easy, everybody would do it. And, and you know, I, I remember coming away from Vegas again, kind of feeling like just because everybody was in cannabis, they got a free pass and expected to be successful. And, you know, having come from healthcare, it was one of these things where it was like, you know, there's pro, I don't know what the stats are, but I would be willing to, you know, make a, make a bet that there were more healthcare companies that were started and failed in 2019 than cannabis companies. That is just how the world works. So, you know, the rules of business still apply here, right? So not every company that's founded because it's cannabis is going to be successful. And so you want to look at, it comes back down to the, the core merits of, of private company, entrepreneurship, private company building and private company investing. And that's management team. It's having, you know, scalability. It's being able to, you know, adapt when things like, you know, the pandemic happened this year and, and being able to be nimble and, and have decisive leadership and be have a collaborative relationship with your entrepreneurs and 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 investors i i think those are all the little things that add up to success absolutely and every investor i've had on the show and have interviewed from my book they all agree that they're betting on the jockey and not the horse and at the end of the day especially in cannabis it's all about the people who are running the business and the people behind the business. And so I'm wondering if you have any tips on doing due diligence about founders or executive teams, especially in cannabis where you have, you know, these legacy operators often and, you know, their backgrounds are a little, um, maybe uh, I'll say different from the typical venture back CEO, non-traditional. Yeah. And that's how I, I was a non-traditional investment banker early on in my career, you know, didn't come through the, you know, but there's a lot of, there can be a lot of value in that too, right? Which is having an alternate perspective, but it doesn't mean that you throw the rules of the game out the window. Right. So uh, if I can answer that question, maybe directed more at the entrepreneurs, right. Um, you know, I would say when I'm meeting entrepreneurs and looking at investment opportunities and having presentations, you know, the, the process of diligence starts right then, right? And, and there's a lot of things that I do, and I'm happy to, to, to share that. It's, you know, not the, to give out the sort of Rosetta Stone, but, you know, I, I like to, you know, ask a lot of questions, um, not necessarily because I believe there's a right or wrong answer or to you know, that I'm simply challenging the merits of the business, but I want to see that there's the ability to have a collaborative working relationship. And what I mean by that is, you know, being willing to be willing to say, you know what, maybe I don't have the answer for that. 
uh, but I can go find it out or be willing to say, you know what, that's an interesting perspective, but here's why we feel differently. And, you know, it's the entrepreneurs that tend to get very defensive, that tend to want to, you know, sort of dazzle you with something shiny over here instead of have the real conversation over there. Um, that spells trouble to me, uh, just in my experience with management teams and entrepreneurs that, that have backed in the past. So I want to try to tease out some of those character traits pretty early on in, in the process. And again, it's not necessarily about being right or wrong, but it's about being aligned. And I, on the flip side of the coin, what advice do you have for entrepreneurs when they're vetting potential investors? Because uh -oh. you know, there's also some non-traditional investors who come into this space. And, yeah. and from what I've, what I've heard, some, uh, I don't want to say sharks or predatory investors, but certainly some investors that come in without the best interests of the entrepreneur in mind. So how can entrepreneurs um, protect themselves and their businesses when, when seeking funding? I think that's a great question. Um, I would say and, and emphasize uh, that diligence is a two-way process, right? So uh, I've actually written a blog on this that I think is going up on my blog site, which is uh, rossobrienvc.com. Uh, I think we're going to launch it next week or in our next newsletter. But I've actually tackled this issue specifically and so given a lot of thought because I have heard a lot of horror stories of, you know, investors, you know, showing up and signing term sheets and then not funding. And, you know, people saying, yeah, I've got this, but they don't. And it's like, it's, it's one of those things where there's a lot of sort of tourists flocking to the space, <laughs> right? And, and have a moment in time to kind of claim to be things. And I, I, I use a hockey analogy. I'm Canadian when I was younger. I always say like, when I first showed up and they're like, who wants to play goalie? I'm like, I want to play goalie, of course. But after you get scored on a hundred times, you don't get to play goalie anymore, right? So you know, you've got to find a skill set and investing is a skill set in its own right. And everybody has a batting average, right? So I would say things like how many investments in private companies have you made? And there's a difference between angel investors and venture investors or fund investors, right? You know, how much, you know, who, who has the decision to say yes or no to this investment? And where is the money coming from? Because there's a different conversation with somebody who's an angel investor investing off their own balance sheet versus someone who's a fund manager, and I've done both, and we're in the fund manager category, where we have capital from investors that we're deploying on behalf of them into investments. I also personally invest, but it's not, you know, it's not the same as me just writing a check directly, which is more angel. You know, and, and when you have an individual that's making a decision versus a you know, committee and, and, and a structure, you just need to understand who you're talking to. Um, I would also say, you know, everybody's got failures and they're trying. If anybody says, oh, we haven't had something go bust yet, then I wouldn't, I would <laughs> hazard that they haven't had a lot of experience investing, <laughs> right? That's just, that is just par for the course. Um, so I'd be very curious about what investments have been made, how they're doing, and always, always, always ask for references from other management teams and uh, of portfolio companies. Um, you know, if this is what, the investor has done for the course of their career, um, they'll be able to, to, to provide references for companies, some that have worked and some that haven't worked, but at least, you know, put you in touch with people that have been in your shoes with that investor before, because it is truly a partnership once you get to that point of, of putting a deal together. To shift gears a bit, I want to go back. You mentioned earlier that during uh, it sounded like this year you had, you went out and raised capital for your fund. And so I'm just curious to hear a little about what that, how easy or challenging that process was and more on the macro level, like what is the cannabis investment landscape looking like right now? Mm -hmm. So, so for us, anecdotally, it's, a, you know, everybody's going to have their own experience for, for us, it was very much just having the space and time and having put all the infrastructure in place to follow through with uh, the investors that, that we had been speaking with and talking to. And once the sort of panic in the markets kind of settled down, um, we just saw a, a lot of people willing to commit. And, and that's, we weren't starting a lot of new conversations in that period of time. It, it does take a long time. Uh, in the book, I've got the five R's of raising capital. One of them is relationships. It takes a many it takes many years along a lot of times to to get these relationships going. 
But I think what we're going to see are a few things going forward. One, I think there will be a contraction in the amount of capital that's going into private companies. Uh, I just, you know, I, I, a number of investors that I interviewed in the book aren't in business anymore or, you know, changed strategy, right? Which to me is also a really big red flag, right? You know, you, the, something different every week. And, and, you know, just be careful and watch that. Um, but I think for the entrepreneurs, that means there's going to be fewer and fewer sources of capital, in particular in where we like to play, which is the one to $5 million sort of series A or first institutional round series B. Uh, a lot of companies are raising bigger, you know, 20, 30, 50 million. Uh, and then there's early, early stage angel stuff, but we don't see a lot of investors, you know, funds, other funds or family offices playing in that sort of, you know, early stage growth capital. So the first sort of inflection point of the first institutional round. So I think that's going to be a tough market to raise capital in if you're an entrepreneur. I also think though, that as with any economic downturn, we are going to see an explosion of entrepreneurship. And I think we're going to see phenomenal businesses built right now. We're going to see, you know, great, resilient entrepreneurs um, find a way to be successful and find a way to, to, you know, put some space between them and their competition. And I think as that happens, we're going to see a lot of really great companies built right now. So I think the opportunity set is getting better and better. Unfortunately, the capital base is, is a little more contracted. Um, and, I, and I tend to think there's going to be a, a lot of momentum on the regulatory side in the next you know, year or two as, as you know, quite candidly, you know, spending in, you know, for stimulus needs to find money from somewhere. And, and obviously taxing cannabis is a way to, to, to do that. So I think we're gonna go into a friendly you know, regulatory environment. I think we're going to um, see fewer and fewer you know, investors or, and, and hopefully more incumbent institutional investors from other sectors than coming into the space and just this you know, explosion in entrepreneurship. So um, it's, a, it's a perfect storm for us as investors, right? But the, the unfortunate thing is, is, is I think it will be very difficult to raise capital. And I'm wondering if you could tell me about in an investment or portfolio company of yours that you're particularly excited about? For sure. So uh, the company that uh, I probably spend the most time with right now is a business called LeafWorks. They're based out of California. Two female founders, both PhDs coming from botanical science. And they're one of the first companies, only a handful, to actually map the genome of the cannabis plant. And they have products in the market right now that are all um, gender uh, identification and um, uh, seed and plant um, sex identification as well. So um, really like them, uh, just dynamic founders, um, super smart, you know, great team. Uh, we're able to really get their arms around the new world very quickly as, as things were changing. And we think this company is going to, you know, be just an absolute home run. I'm wondering if you could tell me a little about, you know, maybe some some stats or metrics on, like, how many deals you look at, you know, a year or a month, just some ballpark of, like, how many deals you look at versus how many you actually, you know, how many you look at, how many you diligence in, in a more serious way, and how many you actually end up uh, investing in. Yeah, so so like I said, I think this the stat will sum for us somewhere around 400 companies and six investments. Um, there are, and I actually talk a lot about this in the book and a couple of the webinars I've done recently. One of the things that, from the entrepreneur lens, that I think you have to to bear in mind is that, you know, typically, um, and the, st the statistics are out there, um, that companies that go to that go seeking venture capital or you know private investment. You know, it's typically a hit rate of one in every 300 companies actually secures funding. And so if you look at that one in 300 ratio, we look at it from the other perspective and say, well, wait a minute, those are 299 companies and entrepreneurs that believe they're a good investment opportunity. So why is there such this gap, right? And I think what it is, is really understanding, you know, what investor, because investors are getting more and more specific around what they're looking for and why. And, and, and unless there's a perfect alignment in that, the reality is, is that there's just so much deal flow 
um, that it's difficult to, to, to stand out. I mean, one of the, one of the easy things for us to, to go through with that kind of volume of deals is valuation. You know, if the, if, if the valuation falls out of, you know, what we think is reasonable, um, we may not even bother having a presentation with, them, right? Like, you know, my job is to find all the reasons to say no to an investment. And when I can no longer find a reason to say no, then we make the investment. Got it. Very interesting approach. And um, I want to ask you, what's a counterintuitive truth about cannabis investment? So, you know, I'll, I'll put it differently, maybe if it helps is what's something that a lot of cannabis investors or entrepreneurs believe is true, but that you know is actually not? <laughs> I like it. it's modification of the uh, Peter Thiel question, right? I like that. It's, um, I, I, think, I think it would stem from, um, you know, that it's an economy and not an industry. And, and I also think that um, something that's a little more controversial, I think, that, that how I think about it internally when I have our conversations with our team and things is, is I, I, I don't believe that uh, vertical integration is the path for the future. And, and, and that's probably the big one. And, and, and I'll explain why. And, and, you know, a lot of people will probably disagree with me, given the nature of the question, right? But it, it just, when you look at vertical integration, and you look at somebody who's really good at cultivation and growing, somebody who's really good at, um, you know, supply chain and logistics, somebody who's really good at running retail and managing bricks and mortar retail, somebody who's really good at consumer products and brands, right, that are sold through retail, somebody who's really good at marketing and advertising, like to run a vertically integrated company, the CEO and the founder has to be exceptional in those five or six different disciplines. And it just doesn't, doesn't happen, right? The, the same person that can run a fantastic, you know, cultivation operation is typically not the same person that can really be good at marketing and taking a consumer product brand to market. So for us, I think we're more interested in what elements of that supply chain on a standalone basis. And I understand there's a regulatory you know, requirement a lot of the time, you gotta start somewhere, but I, I would see that being unwound uh, pretty aggressively across the board and certainly not something you know, where, where we would see as being a long-term investment thesis. So, I, I often tell people when they ask me, especially when they have no idea anything about the cannabis economy and they ask me where to invest, I say, I know the best investment in, and that's in your cannabis education. And awesome. so <laughs> I know that obviously you've, you wrote a book that we discussed that's, you know, if you're an entrepreneur in this space, go pick up the book. It'll be a good investment in your cannabis education, your cannabis career. I'm wondering what are some ways that you invest in your own education, whether it's in cannabis and business or elsewhere? Uh, it's a great question. And um, my, before I answer that, what, what are your books as well, Mike? You said you had multiple. I know you had one, but I... Yeah. So my first one was the Entrepreneur's Guide to Cannabis, which I no longer sell the paper book, now just ebook. And my more recent book is the cannabis business book, which I have right here. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. We, I think we get paired a lot on Amazon, right? Yeah. yeah. I think, yeah, yeah. So we'll have to trade some copies. Absolutely. Um, no, I, I think it's terrific. And I commend you for, for doing that. It's something that I think largely gets overlooked. People are in a rush to go get, they're enamored with big numbers, right? And they're in a rush to go, you know, do something. But I think entrepreneurship, in my experience, is a far more methodical uh, and, and intensive process than just, you know, hanging a shingle out and, and build it and they will come. Um, but education has been a key tenant for, you know, me personally and in my business and business ventures, you know, forever. Uh, going back to, you know, getting my MBA to, you know, going back to school and doing that while I started my own, you know, investment banking practice and doing it on nights and weekends. And I think it's just, it, it, you have to have a, an intellectual curiosity for what you're doing. Right. And I, and I would say the same in cannabis and, and what I would imagine, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, Mike, but I would imagine that we're going to see in, in sooner than we, than we would probably predict a lot more specialization and niche expertise developing in cannabis. 
as opposed to just sort of blanket, hey, you know, I understand cannabis, a lot more expertise in, you know, cultivation or distillation or whatever those, you know, skill sets might be. And I think, I hope that we'll see a lot more, you know, education and, and mind share, because that's really what education is about, right, is figuring something out and then putting a roadmap for somebody else. And, and my inspiration for doing the book was largely because I had failed at so many entrepreneurial ventures when I was a kid and, and, and younger that, you know, I feel like I at least have a set of experiences based in reality that to try to help young Ross, you know, <laughs> who's out there, you know, trying to be successful, you know, navigate some of the landmines. So I'm curious if there is a book that you've read recently that, or, or a book maybe that you would recommend to any entrepreneur, whether it's in cannabis or not, you know, something that's, that's been an instrumental part of your education. Well, so I obviously mentioned Peter Thiel and Zero to One, um, really far more accessible than I anticipated it, um, but incredibly deep and rich in, in content for, for something that's pretty digestible. Um, I'm actually going back and revisiting a lot of the, you know, the classics right now. So it's funny, I, I went back and kind of went through good to great again, and now had a, you know, entirely different lens and was able to, you know, look at, at, at now with some experience set, you know, when I first read it to where I am now, see that, that, um, that trajectory right? And things that I read, you know, and understood the words now have an entirely different meaning with some experience set under it. Um, I also really enjoyed a book. Uh, it, the author's name is not coming to mind right now, but it's called Burn the Business Plan. And he used to be the head of the Kauffman Foundation. And I, I thought that was that, that and um, the Black Book of Entrepreneurship. I really like both of those because they really call out some of the, you know, the, um, the, the, the false narratives in entrepreneurship. And in, you know, in Burn the Business Plan, they've got the, the research that shows, you know, if you want to be a successful entrepreneur, you know, typically, the, on the most part, that entrepreneur is going to have 10 years off, you know, business experience working for somebody else before they go out on their own. And that's just counter to this whole sort of entrepreneur culture of, you know, young kids dropping out of school and, you know, coding apps and things like that. And I think more than anything, you know, like the actual discipline of entrepreneurship is going to be so much more relevant in cannabis because I don't think cannabis is about the unicorns and going after the, you know, high innovation Facebooks and things. So, so I get excited when things are rooted in, in, you know, reality and, and operations. Cool. I will check both of those books out and I'll make sure to link to them in the show notes later. Uh, Ross, I want to shift gears into the coaching portion. And I want to ask you, what is the biggest roadblock you're facing right now? So uh, probably, so I wasn't prepared for this, so I'm going to just go off the top of my head. But I would say the thing that I tend to struggle with the most, uh, and here being open and transparent coaching session, is just, you know, uh, time management, um, uh, routines, right? And, you know, I'm one of those people that always has 50 things on my to-do list every day and I get, you know, 10 or 20 done, right? Um, now, I, I will say that, that the so another silver lining of the sort of pandemic economic cycle that we're going through is really afforded a lot more time to, you know, cut out the noise. So one of the things that I did that I hadn't done in the past uh, in a more disciplined way was really you know, say no to, to more things than usual and really trying to, you know, cut the noise, right? And, and that's been just an absolute, you know, uh, godsend in terms of, you know, productivity, I think. Um, but yeah, I'd say that would probably something around there. How would you characterize those challenges, Mike? Well, first of all, I want to say I wasn't prepared for this either. So we're on, we're on level ground there. <laughs> um, I want to ask you, you know, if there's a specific time management challenge, you know, you mentioned having 50 things on the to-do list and getting to 10 or 20. Um, but I'm, I'm wondering if, if there's like a specific challenge or something that's not happening that you judge needs to be happening or, you know, if there's something that's slipping through the cracks that would 
you know, that you want to be doing or making time for? That would require a more thoughtful response, Mike. Um, I'm going down a couple of rabbit holes, but I'm not sure if they're, you know, personality traits or business elements. Um, I'm not sure how to answer that one, to be honest. I'd prefer to, to maybe come at it from a different angle. Okay. Um, uh, let me ask you this. On a scale of one to 10, how would you rate your satisfaction with how you're spending your time? Great question. Um, well, I'm getting a lot more sleep lately. So <laughs> it's going to be in the, definitely in the top quartile, you know, eight or nine um and and did take the time to really ensure that the daily routine starts to incorporate you know reading and hobbies and things that uh you know when your head's down as an entrepreneur this isn't something that gets talked about a lot i think there's a total blind spot for you know mental health and emotional health and entrepreneurship and uh when in this sort of hustle culture that that gets emphasized um, you know, I'm certainly one of those people, 12, 14, 18 hour days, you know, weeks on end. And, you know, there was a period of time where it was like a badge of honor that I hadn't, you know, taken a vacation in years, but, you know, I've got a, as you can see, walking around in the back, I've got my, you know, best friend that I need to take care of. So I try to make sure that I get him out for long walks and nature time and things like that. And that's just been tremendous, you know, and, and kind of just rebalancing with, uh, with the world. You know, it's funny, I had David Hess on here a couple of weeks ago, and we had a very similar conversation in the coaching piece where he was like, I'm working all the time. I love to work. I love my job. And yeah. I'm always working. And, you know, but I'm not getting enough sleep. <laughs> it's funny, I actually have in my book a whole chapter on the kind of mental health piece of entrepreneurship uh, and how self-care is often the first thing that gets sacrificed by the entrepreneur. And, and I, you know, it's kind of my counterintuitive truth about entrepreneurship is as the entrepreneur, your health is one of the biggest assets to the business. And, and if you are failing to take care of that and you think it's, you know, cause you could put more time into your business if you cut, you know, time for wellness or exercise or whatever, rest and recovery, you're actually completely shooting yourself in the foot. I'm appreciative of the openness in the conversation because, uh, you know, I think entrepreneurs forget the fact that they are their first investor, right? So, so you know, entrepreneurs always like, oh, if I can only just go get that investor and get that. And, and I used to teach entrepreneurship at one of the local universities when I first moved down here. Um, just on, on the side, because I, I love it. I think I've got that educational strain in me. I would always say, well, you are your first investor. So if you can't, you know, justify continuing to spend your own money, spend your own time, I mean, time's your most valuable resource, and you're willing to spend time and effort on this, you know, you should be scrutinizing it as if, you know, as if it was any other business. And, you know, I think the same goes for being healthy and, and, well-rounded as a as as a person i think that's more difficult in entrepreneurship than any other endeavor you know you brought up time management so i'm wondering if you feel there's some area in which you're not investing your time in the way that you want to be <laughs> well i can answer that really quickly i'm 44 years old single never married and no kids <laughs> so my 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 family has largely been my business that may or may not be something that will be a regret. I don't, I don't know, but that would probably be the one, the one bucket that um, uh, I pay the least attention to <laughs> by design. You know, it sounds like you don't really have a huge qualm about it. Where do you want to be five, 10 years from now? You know, I, I, I have a, I have a mission uh, and we have, a, we have a, a, a corporate mandate uh, a corporate mission and then a personal mission that will, I think, answer all of this. Um, our, our business mandate is to create a billion dollars in value and to positively impact a billion lives. And we do that in three ways. We invest, we engage, and we inform. We invest as Bonaventure Equity, our investment fund. And so we want to deploy capital to create outsized returns and build 
and the billion dollars in value includes job creation and economic impact and revenues. Um, we engage, which you know was our investment series, but I do a lot of you know things like this and want to be out and be contextual and be interactive and a you know as much of a bilateral conversation as possible and and inform, which started with the book and, I, and there's an ambition for that to grow into more you know structured programming and things over time, which I think is is starting to happen now that we're seeing some success with it. Um, my personal mission is to create a hundred millionaires in my career. And by create a hundred millionaires, I'm saying I want to be able to be, you know, identified as personally responsible for a hundred people in their careers, realizing the, their potential and creating over a million dollars in value for themselves. So when I, when I look at that, it could be somebody who bought the book and said, hey, I'm thinking differently about my business and they've grown it into a tremendous business and they sell it one day. Um, it's difficult to track, but you know, that's, that's what gets me out of bed every morning, right? And I think there's, there's never been an industry or an economy, an investment industry like cannabis that offers the, the impact that, that, that the billion lives piece could actually be re realistic. And that means we have to have a global lens. And, and so I think it's about, you know, creating enough of a platform uh, to be out there to building value and helping people extract value. And if I do that, you know, on the, for the benefit of others, then, you know, we will be taken care of in that process. That's beautiful. I, I, I'm going to shift gears because uh, I, I, I know you're coming up on time soon. If we had more time, I could dig much deeper, but in the interest of respecting your time, I, I want to shift gears outside of the coaching piece. I want to ask you the question that I skipped earlier, which is, what is your superpower? <laughs> well, um, it, that, that's always a tough one for, I think, a lot of entrepreneurs struggle with um, uh, being willing to, you know, out their own you know, benefits. But I think I think what it comes down to, when I look at the, the seat that I'm in now, um, I think it is uh, being a problem solver and finding solutions. Uh, so being collaborative, right? Which in order to be collaborative successfully, in particular when large sums of money are at risk, means that you have to develop a degree of empathy for the other parties that is not typical. In particular, you said earlier, there's a lot of investors who are sharky and these types of things. You know, there's a reason the term vulture capital, you know, evolved. That's just not how I'm wired and it's not how I'm going to be wired. And it's not what my investors expect of me. And it's not how we create great relationships with the entrepreneurs that we work with. So I think it is about finding alignment. It's about being collaborative and having the empathy to, you know, have perspectives on what the other person's point of view is. You know, I, I find myself saying to entrepreneurs a lot, when they're you know pitching or asking for advice on presentations and things like it's not about trying to convince the investor that it's your view of the world that's right it's about understanding what their view of the world is and showing them how you fit that right and so when you can step into another person's which i think is actually probably a macro societal issue that we have right now people unwilling to you know walk a mile in somebody else's shoes and have that kind of empathy and perspective so there's something in there I think that's, you know, my superpowers, probably also my kryptonite too, because I tend to give a, a lot of people a lot more benefit than, uh, than, than they deserve pretty early on. But, you know, you learn the hard way, those things. I hear that. Well, I believe the problem solving part, because I asked you to share a problem with me and you don't have any. So, <laughs> oh, well, so I, I, I do. I'm just not sure I'm ready to bear it all for the world. Right. I, I understand. No, I'm, I'm just teasing. What was the biggest insight that came up for you during our conversation? So uh, I really enjoyed, you know, your recapping of the, you know, my answers to put them in a context for the follow-on conversation. Cause you don't hear that a lot. Like sometimes these conversations, you just sort of, you know, say things and then it's on to the next question on the next question, um, which highlighted for me that, you know, there are a lot of people thinking this way or, you know, tend to be, a, I think I saw your head nodding a fair bit through this process. And it's, it's, I think, less of a lonely endeavor if we take the time to align with like-minded people. And that, that struck me just as a general tenor of the conversation. I appreciated that. Cool. I'm glad to hear that. If, if we go one layer deeper, what's the value in that for you? It's always difficult to be 
on an island, you know, with a megaphone or whatever it might be, trying to convince a whole bunch of people. I just talked about not trying to convince people, but trying to, you know, say, hey, there's some method to the madness. Um, and when you see that there's others out there that are willing to think more deeply or write books, <laughs> right, and try to unpackage things further, uh, it just makes it less of a singular endeavor. I hear that. Yeah, it's uh, there's something reassuring about knowing that you're not the only one fighting the fight and, and doing the hard work yeah. and, and trying yeah. to bring people along because... I can ha sometimes have the thought of like, oh man, like, uh, am I crazy to think that I could just make a difference here? I'm just one guy doing this stuff. But then, you know, it's actually, it's funny. I'll, I'll share a quick story. When I was writing the book, I, I interviewed 50 cannabis entrepreneurs to get their perspectives and to, to synthesize and share it. And during that time, I was actually, a lot of people don't know this. I, I've never said this publicly, I don't think is. I was kind of like, man, like, forget this. Like, I don't want to be in the cannabis industry anymore. I was like disillusioned. And, you know, I came in with all these idealistic, like, save the world kind of thing. Um, and I was like, oh, man, like, I was really, really disgruntled and disillusioned. But in talking to all of the entrepreneurs doing the interviews, it every time it fired me up because I was like, wait a second, like, I'm not crazy. Yeah, you know? Yeah, there, there's other people who are like devoted to doing exactly the same thing. And, you know, granted in their own way, different styles and approaches, mechanisms, whatever. But it was really, really reassuring for me to be like, all right, like, I'm not crazy. This is actually the truth. And it's great. So if I could, if I, if you got a glimpse of that from our time together, then that makes me sure. feel like I did my job today. So. <laughs> Awesome. No, I enjoyed it, Mike. Um, really interesting. But I did want to ask you if you have any last words or like a closing thought or anything you wanted to share. As we say in Canada, keep your stick on the ice. Nice. <laughs> awesome. Well, Ross, thank you so much for taking the time to, to be on the show with me today. And it was great to connect and keep up the good work. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. We should do this again. For sure. Hi, Mike Z is. Hi, Mike Z is. Hi, Mike Z is the cannabis business coach. Hi, Mike Z is. Hi, Mike Z is. Hi, Mike Z is the cannabis business coach.